If you would open up your uh, Bible this morning to 2 Samuel 13, we're going to continue with the reading of God's word and then the preaching of his word. Uh, If you don't have one, feel free to grab one from in front of you. Uh, 2 Samuel 13 is on page 246 there. And we will also have the words, uh, the word of the Lord up on the screen. When you get there, if you're able to, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone for me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his, his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. 
So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon, as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch, who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road beside him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. And, but Absalom fled and went to the Talami and the son of Amahud, king of Geshar. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshar and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day that you've given to us. God, thank you for continuing to give each and every one of us here the gift of life. Lord, we thank you so much for this church and the fellowship that we enjoy with one another as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. God, we thank you so much for your holy word. And God, we believe that your word is um, it's alive and it's active. We believe that your word is true. We, we believe that you use your word to sanctify us and to make us more like Jesus. And we believe that every single passage that we read from Genesis to Revelation is inspired by you, God, and is given to us to instruct us in righteousness and godliness and to lead us to salvation in Jesus, your son. So God, this morning as we think about this passage here in 2 Samuel chapter 13, Lord, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would minister to each and every one of us, that you would take this written word and you would use it to minister to our hearts, to encourage our faith, and to strengthen us so that we can live lives that are pleasing to you. And we ask this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Please go ahead and grab a seat. Dennis Prager is a well-known conservative thinker, and he created a bit of a firestorm recently with some comments that he made about pornography and lust. Maybe some of you saw this. Prager is a religious Jew. He's not a Christian. But here's what he said in part. He said this, and I'll put it on the screen for us. He said, if pornography is a substitute for one's wife, it is awful. But if it's a substitute for adultery, it's not awful. There were a lot of religious people who took offense to that, particularly Christians, and thought there's something really, really wrong about that statement. Now, in fairness to Prager, he later clarified that when he was thinking of the term pornography, in his mind he was thinking Playboy from the 1960s and nothing like the modern porn industry that we're all so, so familiar with. But underneath that idea and that statement that he made about the rightness of pornography, if it's preventing a man from committing adultery, is a deep-seated belief that there's nothing inherently wrong with lust. In fact, Prager said it this way, speaking of Judaism, he said, we have no equivalent to, and then he quotes the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, if you look upon a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. According to Prager, 
Judaism is not concerned with the interior life of the individual. It's concerned with a person's behavior, the external actions that we commit. But for those of us who are well-versed in the scriptures, we would argue that that's not entirely true, right? I mean, if you look at the Old Testament, you realize that the Old Testament is, in fact, concerned with the interior life of the people of God. For example, in one of the most famous passages that young Jews are taught to memorize, the Shema, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read this, that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. There's an emphasis there on our loves or our desires. And this is again in the Old Testament. Of course, David himself famously wrote in Psalm 19:14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So here's David, the great psalmist of Israel, desiring that that the the inner workings and inner thoughts of his heart would be acceptable before the Lord. Even in the Ten Commandments themselves, there is emphasis given to a person's motives and desires. Here's the Tenth Commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. What does it mean to covet something? Well, to covet something is to desire something that rightfully belongs to another. So again, even in this command, the 10th commandment, God is looking past our external actions and he's, he's, he's looking into the motives and the desires of the heart of his people. And so Jesus' teaching on lust is not a departure from the teachings of the Old Testament. Rather, Jesus was simply making explicit what was already implicit in the Old Testament. Namely, that lust is sinful. Lust has always been wrong before God because lust has always been destructive. And although the Old Testament doesn't explicitly condemn lust the way Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, you will find many examples in the Old Testament that that demonstrate for the reader the destructive effects of lust. And one of the clearest examples that you find in the Old Testament is 2 Samuel chapter 13, the text that we have read together this morning. This whole story is awful. I mean, it's it's terrible. It's, It's difficult to even read the passage, let alone sit and discuss it. One of David's sons rapes his half sister. And then. Her full brother kills that brother in revenge for what this man had done to his sister. Immediately, what we are seeing here in 2 Samuel chapter 13 is the consequences that the prophet Nathan warned David were coming as a result of David's own sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. In chapter 12, just the chapter that we studied last week, The prophet Nathan was sent by the Lord to David and he foretold that sexual sin and violence would not depart from the house of David. And here we start seeing these things take place. But I want you to notice this morning how all of this began. Family, listen, the outward sins of rape and murder only come after the inward sins of lust and hatred in 2 Samuel 13. The first section of our story, which is the primary emphasis of the author, shows us the destructive effects of lust. This is verses 1 through 22. Again, it shows us the destructive effects of lust. Let's turn again to the text. Look down at verse 1. It says, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon 
to do anything to her. The verse begins by introducing a character named Absalom. The author says, now Absalom. And this helps us to realize that the author is beginning at this point to tell us the story about Absalom, which is going to occupy the next several chapters. But he can't adequately tell us about Absalom and the man that Absalom becomes without first telling us the story of the rape of Absalom's sister, Tamar. And so that story is told to us first. Now verse 1 tells us that this young woman, Tamar, was beautiful. It also tells us that over time, her half-brother Amnon became infatuated with her. Initially, we are led to believe as readers that Amnon loved Tamar. And in his mind, he did. That's what he tells his friend Jonadab in verse 4. Look down at your Bible. It says, Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So he was under the impression that he loved his half-sister. But over time, it becomes clear that what Amnon called love is better defined as lust. The fact that she is off limits to him is tormenting him to the point that it's actually making him sick. The Old Testament law was very clear that you could not marry your sister. Even your half-sister was completely forbidden. In Leviticus 18 verse 9 we read this, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. And then two verses later in verse 11, the author of Leviticus, Moses, makes it even more clear. He says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. So she is off limits to Amnon. And the fact that she is off limits is, in the Hebrew here, is tormenting him. That word torment means to be wrapped up or tied up or to be locked up. So Amnon here is lovesick over his sister who is off limits to him. And this is more than just having feelings for somebody and thinking about that person often. Or getting butterflies in your stomach when they're around and a dopamine hit when they text message you. This is him being completely consumed by Tamar. It's all that this man can think about. It's suffocating him and it's leading him to be depressed because he can't have her. So obvious is his obsession that his friend Jonadab picks up on it. Initially, Jonadab seems like a good friend because he asks him in verse 4, what's the matter? What's going on? He's curious and he's inquiring. He says, oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? It's a great way to say hello to somebody in the morning, huh? Why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? So he seems like a good friend that's inquiring, but it's Jonadab, this friend, this counselor, who is the one who devises the plan for Amnon to actually trap his sister Tamar. Look at verse five. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So rather than helping Amnon to realize, hey, your desires are totally disordered. What you want here is wrong and you need to let this go. Instead of doing that, Jonadab actually helps stoke the flames of passion in Amnon's heart. Hey, I got an idea. You want your sister? Here's how you could get her. This is what you need to do. Now, as a parent and a pastor, I just couldn't help but see here a warning to be careful about who your friends are. About who is speaking into your life. I mean, the text here calls Jonadab Amnon's friend. The Apostle Paul warns us in this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. It's been well said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. As you get older, you start to look back on your life and you begin to realize that so many of the bad mistakes that you've made in your life 
came by following the example or the direct encouragement of friends in your life. And it's also true that so many of our good and God-honoring decisions that we've made in our life have come by following the example or the direct encouragement of our friends. So what about your friends? What about the people that are speaking into your life? I mean, you need to just stop and take inventory. What, what examples am I constantly exposing myself to? Who are the people that are regularly speaking into my life and guiding me and instructing me and encouraging certain things in my life? Do your friends encourage your faith or do they, like Jonadab, encourage your flesh? Friends, if we want to be godly, if we want to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord, we've got to be people whose friends, who's those who are close to us, are encouraging our faith and are helping us to identify when we're feeding our flesh so that we can repent from that and honor the Lord. Jonadab, Amnon's friend, concocts this plan for Amnon and Amnon follows it to a T. Look again at verse 7. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber, meaning his private bedroom, that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. So he clears the room and he gets his sister now to bring this food that she's prepared into his private bedroom and it is there that he makes his move. Look at verse 11. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, she says, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Verse 14, but he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. What a horrendous scene. I mean, again, it's upsetting to even read this passage. Your heart just breaks for this young lady, Tamar. And not just for her, but the countless other women who have experienced the abusive actions of men. I mean, it's so clear what happens here. She says to him, no, don't do this. She even wisely points out how egregious this act would be. She says, listen, for such a thing is not done in Israel. This isn't right. This is not even according to our customs and our laws. Therefore, she says, this is an outrageous thing that you have in mind. And further, she pleads with her brother to take into consideration how much harm this would do to her. Not to mention the harm that it would do to himself. She says, essentially, I'm going to have to carry the shame and the stigma of this for the rest of my life. And she knows she would be considered unmarriable and he would be forever marked by his foolishness and evil in Israel and so she suggests an alternative she says ask the king which is both of their fathers king David ask the king for my hand in marriage now it's it's really impossible for us to know where this suggestion is coming from as we saw marrying your half-sister was a violation of the old testament law But we aren't really sure how well the law was known at this point in Israel's history or how closely the Israelites were following all of the Torah at this point. So it could be a legitimate suggestion coming from Tamar as she's looking at the two alternatives and she's saying, this is certainly better than the alternative. Or, and this seems more likely, Tamar has no desire to marry him. But she's thinking quickly on her feet and she's making a desperate attempt to buy herself more time and to just get out of this situation. But at any rate, he ignores her pleading and he forces himself on her. 
And now, family, we can see that what was called love is actually lust. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul famously writes about love. And he says that love is patient. He says that love is kind. He says that love does not insist on its own way. And Amnon's actions here are the polar opposite of all of that. He is not being kind toward Tamar. He is not being patient with his own desires and the things that he wants. And he is insisting on his own way and not taking his sister into consideration. He is unconcerned with the person. He's just in it for the pleasure. See, lust objectifies another person. Again, it's not concerned with the person. It's not taking that into consideration. It's only concerned with the pleasure. And this is what's so evil and wicked about lust. Friends, we are called to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We are called to love other people and to acknowledge that they themselves are image bearers of God. And therefore, they have inherent dignity and worth and value. We are called to honor one another and to love one another. Love seeks what is best for the other, even at the expense of ourselves. Did you hear that? Let me say that again. Love seeks what is best for the other, even at the expense of ourselves. But lust seeks our own gratification, even at the expense of others. It's getting what I want. I don't care about the impact that it has on you. I'm seeking my own gratification. And we see that this is so clearly what's going on in verse 15. Look at verse 15 again. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. Notice with me that the moment that his physical cravings are satisfied, he wants nothing more to do with her. This is not love. This is lust. When love is behind the physical act, sex produces intimacy. This is why God ordains that sex be experienced in the loving context of marriage. Because again, if if the, the physical act is flowing out of a loving relationship, it develops more and more intimacy between the two. But when lust is behind the physical act, then sex produces indifference or worse, as in Amnon's case. Now, that indifference might not reveal itself instantaneously like it did here, but a relationship built on lust will fall apart. This is why it's so tragic when young people and especially young girls think to themselves, if I sleep with him, then he will love me. If he doesn't love you, no amount of sex is going to change that. And if he does love you, if he truly loves you, he would pursue your heart and try to secure you for a lifetime through this beautiful thing called marriage. His heart is completely changed after They have slept together. He now hates her. He wants nothing to do with her. And so in verse 16, we see now the second time that Tamar says no to her brother. And both times he will refuse to listen to her. The first time she's saying no to his sexual request. But now here in verse 16, it's no to the idea of being sent away. Look at verse 16. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Now you should know that in Israel, if a man slept with an unbetrothed woman, meaning a woman who was not engaged to be married to another man, he was obligated to marry her and to pay the bridal price to her father. Now, the law stipulated that if a father completely refused the marriage, then uh, the marriage wouldn't happen. But, But the law's point was it prevented men from just using women sexually in Israel. 
If you wanted to go there, you were obligated then to care for her through marriage. So Amnon sending her away is the ultimate injury. This is why in her words, she says, this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. And this explains her tremendous grief after being thrown out of Amnon's house and having the door bolted shut behind her. Look at verse 19. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. She knows in this moment that her ability to get married, her ability to have a family of her own, has been greatly diminished because of Amnon's sin. And it appears in the text that she was never able to marry. Because we read in verse 20, So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. I mean, how heartbreaking. Here is a a beautiful young woman whose whole entire life is fundamentally altered in a horrible way because of the sin of somebody else. I found myself asking, what hope is there for this woman, Tamar? This is where all of our trite cliches break down that the world offers. Hey, keep your head up. Oh, things will get better. What doesn't kill you will only make you stronger. None of that works here. Here's a woman whose life has been devastated and will never, ever be the same. And it's heartbreaking. But as a pastor, and more importantly, as a Christian, I found myself encouraged this week. And the reason I found myself encouraged is because only Christianity has the resources to offer hope to a person like Tamar. She asks an an important question. She says, where could I carry my shame? Another translation puts it this way. Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And family, the answer will be the cross of Christ. Pastor Tim Chester explains it this way, and I quote, he says, At the cross, Jesus not only atoned for our guilt, he also removed our shame. He puts right both the wrong we have done and the wrong that has been done to us. He clothes us with his righteousness and makes us the children of God, end quote. There is joy and life to be had on the other side of trauma and sin for the believer in Jesus Christ. Not because everything will necessarily get better in this life. Things certainly didn't for Tamar. And sometimes they don't get better in this life for us. The reason that there is joy and life to be had on the other side of trauma and sin is because in Jesus, this life that we're living right now is not the end. Jesus offers eternal life in the kingdom of his father where joy and peace and righteousness have no end. And what that means is that for a person who has experienced great sin against them, like Tamar, great injustice being perpetrated against them, if they have their faith in Jesus, although they will still carry pain and misery and suffering as a result of what's happened to them, they are not ultimately left in despair. There is still hope for us on the other side of trauma and sin because we hope in Jesus and Jesus gives us eternal life. Well, after this horrible scene, Absalom reappears in the text. He's here in verse 20. It says, And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So he says to his sister, Hold your peace. What he means there is, he says, Don't take matters into your own hands. Okay, this is not your responsibility. And then he reminds her that that he is your brother, which means that ultimately it is our father, David, the king's responsibility to handle this. So he's saying, be patient. This isn't your responsibility. 
It's King David's responsibility. And what does David do? Look at verse 21. When King David heard of all of these things, he was very angry. Now this is arguably the second most tragic part of this story. What this young lady Tamar needs right now in this moment, more than anything else in the world, is for her father, King David, to step in and make things right. She needs justice. And the king, her father, is the only one who can give it. And yet what we read in this tragic story is that David is angry, but he does nothing. David is angry, but he does nothing. And so the question is, why? He's the king and this is his daughter and why, why does he do nothing? It seems that what is going on here is that King David had lost the moral high ground. And here comes a very heavy lesson for us. David likely felt incapable of condemning Amnon because Amnon could simply throw David's own sin right back in his face. Back in chapter 11, hadn't David followed his own lust and taken a woman who rightfully belonged to someone else who was off limits and committed adultery with her and then murdered her husband as a cover-up? And besides, where did Amnon learn to objectify women and to follow his sexual impulses? Let's go back in the story a few chapters. This is 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was who? Amnon. Of Ahinoam, of Jezreel, and his second, Chiliab, of Abigail, the widow of Nabal, of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, the son of Makah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithream, of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. So Amnon, this man here, was born to David when he was king over Judah, just one of the 12 tribes in Israel. And after Amnon is born, David multiplies wives and he has other children. There's six wives listed here. And his firstborn son is watching this. As time passes, David becomes king over all of Israel. Now it's not just the one tribe of Judah, he's king over all 12 tribes of Israel. And he moves his family to Jerusalem. And here's what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. And who's watching this? His son Abnon. Watching his dad continuing, adding more and more women into his harem. And then, as I mentioned, there's the tragic episode of Bathsheba. How could David now call out his son for following his own lust and sleeping with a forbidden woman? He had lost the moral high ground. Family, here's the lesson for us. Integrity produces moral authority. Integrity produces moral authority. And, let me say this in reverse, a lack of integrity undermines moral authority. This is why sins like adultery are disqualifying for pastors in ministry. And I know that there are pastors who have committed adultery, have taken a year off and have come back to the ministry. That's wrong. It is a disqualifying sin. Because how could a pastor who has committed adultery, now I'm not talking about before they were ever a Christian, but how could a pastor who has committed adultery ever preach on or counsel people in his congregation on marriage and family with any sense of moral authority whatsoever? A lack of integrity undermines moral authority. And parents, let me shift gears because we're dealing in this text with a parent, a dad, who has lost moral authority with his son, this is huge for us. And we have to take this to heart. 
If you constantly yell and scream and use profanity and demeaning speech in your house, what can you say when you see those very same things being repeated in your own children? If you're violent and you slam things around and throw things across the room and put your fist through the wall, or God forbid, lay hands on people in your home, what can you say when you see your own children doing things like this at school or elsewhere? If you pursued a divorce because you just weren't happy or you didn't love them anymore, I'm just warning you, what are you going to be able to say when your own adult child wants to walk out on their family to go find themselves? Now, I need to say this. If you have repented of those things, that's wonderful. That's awesome. Praise God. Because if you have repented, meaning that you've stopped doing those things, and you've started charting a new course in your life, if you've done that, then you have the ability to admit to your children, hey, I know I used to do these things, but dad was wrong. And that is sinful. And you know what? That actually created all of these other problems and destructive things. And you have now, again, regained moral authority to be able to warn your children of the destructiveness of your behavior. God can redeem what you've repented of. But if your life pattern has consistently demonstrated sinful compromise, you lose credibility to correct your children. Now, I'm not saying you'll stop trying or even that you should stop trying. I'm just saying it's going to go nowhere. Do as I say, not as I do doesn't fly with our kids. It just doesn't. You've lost moral authority. Integrity produces moral authority. Authority. Your integrity is everything. This is why Proverbs 22.1 says it this way. It says, a good name, meaning integrity. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Okay, if it's a billion dollars on the table or your reputation and your integrity, Solomon is saying, take your integrity. That's what matters most. That is fundamental. So David here is rightfully angry Over the sin of Amnon, but he's impotent to do anything about it because of his own sinful failures. And guess what? That void opens up the door for Absalom to take matters into his own hands. And he does. Look at verse 22. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? You can tell David thinks something's off here. But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. All parents know what that's like when your kid just will not relent. And sometimes you give in. And David does here. Absalom's pressing him and pressing him. And he allows Amnon to go with him. Verse 28, then Absalom commanded his servants, mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Now we've already seen in this text the destructive effects of lust. But now we're seeing the destructive effects of hatred. Verse 22 tells us that Absalom, what? He hated Amnon. And this hatred festered for a long time. Verse 23 told us it's after two years that this plan is actually activated. Hatred, much like lust, left undealt with, will boil over into sinful actions that will negatively impact other people's lives. And so Absalom devises a plan and he commits premeditated murder on his half-brother. 
The news comes to David and it's the worst kind of news a parent could hear. Look at verse 30. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth and all the servants who were standing by tore their garments. Imagine being David. You gave the green light for Amnon to go and for all your sons to go with Absalom. News comes back to you that your one son Absalom has killed all of your other sons. I mean, it's just the worst of the worst. It doesn't get worse than this. And he is overwhelmed with grief. He falls to the floor. But suddenly, Jonadab resurfaces in the story. I don't know if you noticed that as Janelle read the text for us. But look at verse 32. Jonadab knows what really happened. Here's what he says. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. This is interesting because here's the guy who created the plan for Amnon to rape his sister. And now he's here trying to offer a word of comfort to David in the midst of the mess that he started. It's wild. But the chapter ends with Absalom fleeing to his grandpa on his mom's side, a man named Talmai, the king of Geshur. And the rest of David's sons are hurrying back to Jerusalem. And the last paragraph here in chapter 13 ends with a painful reminder of the destructive power of sin. This is verses 34 through 39. The Bible teaches that sin may be pleasurable for a season, but ultimately it leads to misery. And verse 36 aptly depicts this. Here's verse 36. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. This is what sin does. Sin brings suffering. Sin brings misery. Here is a family that is shattered and left grieving because a family member has been killed. But also because another family member is alienated. Absalom remained in the land of Geshur for three years. So think about that. There are sins that are committed here. And the impact is that there's a family, again, that is bereft and grieving. And there is now alienation in this family and the relationships within the family. Now, I've often heard from non-Christians, and maybe you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, and we're very glad that you are. But I've often heard from non-Christians that, that one of the things about Christianity that turns them off is how serious Christianity takes sin. Just all the conversation about sin, and then even more so about God's judgment against sin. And non-Christians sometimes wonder to themselves, why, why does God care so much? If there really is a God, why would he care so much? And sure, there are certain sins that maybe you could say, I could understand why God would care about murder. But for sure, why would God care about what I think or like my internal thoughts and feelings that I have on the inside? Maybe you, like Dennis Prager, feel that the only thing that matters is your outward behaviors, the actual actions. Well, I want you to know that Jesus had a different perspective. Here's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. He said, The good person out of the good, out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So Jesus says that, that what is going on in our hearts ultimately produces the words and the behaviors and the actions that are external to us. What is in your heart will come out in words and actions. And so I want you just to stop and think as we bring this message to a close about the connection of all of these sins. In this story, lust, which again, a lot of people would go, what's the big deal with lust? Who cares? I'm not hurting anybody, it's internal. In this story, lust led to rape. Rape destroyed a beautiful young woman's life. The destruction of her life led to her brother hating her half-brother. That hatred boiled over into murder. 
And that murder ultimately left a family bereft and grieving and alienated from one another. So if we ask ourselves the question, why is God such a stickler about sin? Why is sin such a big deal to God? The answer is that God's hatred of sin is an expression of God's love. I'm going to say that again because I don't think all of us think of it this way. God's hatred of sin is an expression of God's love. God hates sin because sin destroys the people that God has created and that he loves. And so God, in his great love, did something about sin. Here's Romans 8, 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The cross of Jesus shows both God's hatred of sin and God's love of sinners. The cross shows us that sin is serious. So serious that God's own son had to die in our place for the consequences of sin. Sin is all that is wrong in the world. Sin is what brings death and destruction. Sin is the root cause of all suffering and misery. Sin hurts people that are created in the image of God. So the cross shows us sin is serious and it's awful. And yet at the same time, the cross shows us God's love for sinners. At the cross, Jesus paid for the sins of every person who would come to him by faith. And through his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, Jesus is undoing all of the heartache and all of the destruction and all of the misery that sin has caused in our lives. And so for those of us who have come to see sin for what it is, We also see the cross for what it is. It's the greatest demonstration of the love of God that you can conceive of. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, the apostle John writes this. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Family, sin is serious. Sin is awful. Sin is horrendous. But there is no sin that anyone has ever committed that is so egregious that the cross of Jesus cannot atone for it. At the cross, Jesus died for all of our sins for those of us who have put our faith in him. And so this morning, we've considered a very heavy, tragic, and sad text together. But we're also going to consider the good news of all that Christ has done for us, who like Amnon, are also sinners before God. This morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. And ultimately, that should lead each and every one of us out of a place of sadness to a place of joy. Because it's at the cross of Christ, as I've explained, that God dealt with our sins so that we can be forgiven and so that God can begin putting things right in our lives once again. So I'm gonna pray for us and then I'm gonna explain communion and then we're gonna receive communion together this morning as one body of Christ. So would you please pray with me?